This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. path of meditation that we're practicing is the path of opening, opening different parts of our being on all levels. It's the opening of our bodies, working with, becoming aware of the places of tension, of holding, of energy knots, and learning how to Experience them, relax into them, and open and release. So we come to a more free flow of energy. It's the opening of our senses. I have noticed, even in these first five or six days, Especially when you walk outside, as the mind gets more quiet, more focused, the sense perceptions get more refined. We hear things that we didn't pay attention to before. We see in a different way. We smell things. It's a refinement and an opening of our sense perceptions. It's an opening of our intellect in the sense that we become more clear about the thoughts that are going through the mind. Instead of the confusion and jumble of thoughts, through the practice, the mind becomes more finely tuned, more clearly aware of what it is that's actually going on. An opening of the body, an opening of the senses, clarifying of the intellect, Opening of the emotions. So many parts of ourselves that we have not wanted to look at, kept down, not open to. As we sit and pay attention over a period of time, everything that's been held back or resisted begins slowly in an organic way to surface. So we begin to feel in a more thorough way, in a more open way, the full range of emotional states. Opening of the body, opening of the intellect, of the senses, of the emotions. Opening of the intuition. As the mind gets more silent, we gain access to an intuitive realm, which is not discursive, not thinking things out, but rather the mind's spontaneous responses to situations or circumstances. We get more tuned to that intuitive level. We make enough space in the mind to hear it. We become more open to different levels of silence. Manindraji once gave a talk on 21 kinds of silence. 
It took three hours. <laughs> there are realms of the mind that are vast in comparison to the realm of thought and emotion that we are accustomed to. And through the practice, through this practice of opening, opening this mind-body system, we get also in touch with these realms of silence and the power and the strength that comes from that. Question is, how do we do that? How do we proceed to open on all these levels? There are many different techniques of practice, many different systems. How do we know which one to follow, which one to do? It takes a very strong commitment of time, of energy, of effort. So how do we know where to invest our energy? Who to believe? The story of Nasruddin Thank goodness for Nasruddin. <laughs> Very grateful to him. Somebody came to borrow his donkey. Friend came and he told his friend, I'm sorry, and I don't have my donkey now. And just then the donkey began to bray outside the window. <laughs> and the friend got very incensed. How can you, how can you say you don't have the donkey? You know, I can hear it braying outside the window. Nasruddin got very incensed back. He said, who are you going to believe, me or the donkey? (laughs) (laughs) So the question of who to believe, it's an important one. When people ask the Buddha, the same question, and it's passed down in a very famous sutta discourse. Buddha was passing through this town, and the townspeople came to him and questioned. They said, you know, so many different teachers come through here, and they all have their different systems and different teachings. How do we know who to believe? And the Buddha said, not to believe anybody not to believe the books, and not to believe the teachers, and not to believe tradition. Rather, look to your own experience and see what it is that makes for the growth of greed and hatred and delusion, and abandon those things. Look to your own experience and see what makes for the growth and development of generosity, of love, of compassion, of wisdom. Those things are to be practiced. So always it's a question of our looking to our experience to see for ourselves what is skillful and what isn't skillful. It's not a question of a belief system or a tradition or some body of teachings. It's a question of how we can learn to look and investigate within ourselves to discover for ourselves what it is that's true. There's one quality of mind or one state of mind which is the foundation of this self-investigation or self-exploration. If that's where the truth is to be found, to be experienced, each for ourselves, What are the qualities of mind that will enable us to do it? And the foundation stone of this investigation or exploration is a state of mind or quality of mind called bare attention. That is the ability of the mind to be with things, to be with experiences as they are, without judging, without comparing, without biases, without choosing, and without preconception, but rather that ability simply to see, to understand things as they present themselves, without our thinking mind or, or our analyzing mind jumping into the situation and trying to figure it out. 
Krishnamurti calls this state of mind choiceless awareness or non-interfering awareness. It seems so obvious and clear that if we want to understand the nature of our experience, the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, what we have to do is to look, and to look carefully, and to look without preconception. One of my favorite haiku poems is one written by an old Zen master. He wrote, The old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. That's all. The old pond, frog jumps in, plop. Bare bones. Right? No fanciful description of the pond and sunset and how peaceful it was and the stillness. <laughs> Just a crystal clear expression of the experience. The old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. Bare attention means cultivating plop mind. That momentary, clear, unbiased awareness of what's happening. As we cultivate bare attention, as we cultivate this choiceless awareness, we begin to explore and understand various aspects, various parts of this experience, parts of this mental state, mental investigation, which are developed and cultivated along with it. One of them, and it's a key element of the practice, is that we find ourselves living more and more in the present moment. It's what bare attention means. It's the implication of bare attention that actually we're living in the moment. You've probably seen by now quite clearly how much of the time we spend in past and future. It's quite staggering when we actually take the time to sit down and pay attention to what our minds are doing, how much of the time we're lost in thought. We're lost in thought, we're lost in the story of ourselves, And much of that story is taking place in the past, things that have already happened, or anticipating the future. You see how difficult it is to actually be present. Yet as the bare attention is cultivated, as the awareness is cultivated, more and more we get stabilized in the present moment. It has a tremendous power. The simplicity of the moment has tremendous power to cut through confusion of mind. Right now, as you're sitting here, can you feel the sensation of your hands, either as they're resting on one another or as they're resting on your lap? Just feeling that sensation, the simplicity of that sensation. What's the problem? There's no problem. It's just, it's just this. And it's so simple. Every moment is just like this. It's either the experience of sitting or standing or walking or lying down. The experience of hearing something or seeing something or thinking something without being lost in it. Aware of the thinking. As we live more and more in the simplicity of the moment, you see this powerful ability to cut through the confusion and the difficulties and the complications of our lives. Because that confusion and complication is happening in the storyline. It's happening in our thoughts about things. So as we cultivate bare attention settling back into the moment, our lives become much more simple. One way of strengthening 
this ability to live in the moment, is to pay attention to doing one thing at a time. Instead of trying to do 15 things at once, when we're sitting, just sitting, and we're standing, just standing, or just hearing, or just seeing, one thing at a time. The story of the Zen master Sansanim He was in his center in Providence. He was in the dining room eating breakfast. And as he was reading, as he was eating, he was reading a a newspaper. And his students came in and they were horrified. Because in Zen, as in Vipassana, there's a lot of emphasis on paying attention to what you're doing and doing one thing at a time and being fully and becoming one with it and And here's the Zen master, eating breakfast and reading his newspaper. (laughs) And so they got very agitated, the students. And they said, how can you be doing that? You're supposed to be doing just one thing at a time. You know, if you eat, eat, and if you read, read. And Santanin replied with great aplomb, and when you eat and read, just eat and read. And I like that story, both because I like to eat and read, (laughs) and also as a way of the reminder not to get caught in a narrow model or an idea of what living in the present means. Because if we get caught in the model or idea of it, that's just another way of becoming tight and rigid. There's tremendous power from dropping back, from settling back into the moment. It's important for you to recognize the difference between settling back and holding yourself back. Have you recognized in moving around, in an effort to go more slowly, Have you seen the difference when all of your energy is kind of charging forward, but you have this idea that you should go slowly, and so kind of, you know, reining yourself in and you're holding yourself back, but straining, you know, as you're moving slowly. The difference between that and simply settling back into the moment and from that place of balance, letting the movement happen. The first is a state of tension. Holding yourself back creates a lot of tightness and a struggle. Settling back creates a sense of ease and spaciousness. So pay attention to how you're moving. A good time to do that, and it's very instructive to watch, Notice the difference between when you're doing the walking meditation, just back and forth, lifting, moving, placing, just moving carefully and slowly. Notice the difference between the quality of your energy and your balance at that time and when you're walking to lunch. (laughs) Probably for many of you, and I've noticed it many times in myself, In the walking meditation, it's very settled back. It's just one thing at a time when you're lifting, just lifting. And yet, in going to lunch, it's (laughs) that slight leaning forward into each step in order to get where we're going. That sense of anticipation, whether it's in the sitting and we're anticipating the next breath, or it's the walking and we're anticipating where we're going to get to, that anticipation is a subtle way of not being fully present, not being settled back. So it's something to be aware of. Living in the present, it's one quality, one outcome of bare attention. There's another aspect to it. 
which becomes more pronounced as the meditation goes on. And that's the quality of restfulness. Now, our minds are very busy. You've probably noticed how judgmental and reactive the mind is. Things come up, we like it, we don't like it, we get attached, we feel aversion. The mind is always commenting. Have, have you met the commentator you know, in the mind? It's pretty strongly conditioned in most of us. That, that voice in the mind which is always judging or always commenting, or always has something to say about something, It's tiring. I mean, it's no wonder that we need so many hours of rest every night, because we tire ourselves out. As the mind gets more still, as the bare attention, that non-interfering awareness, becomes more stabilized, as we develop this mirror-like wisdom of mind, find that actually that's a place of very deep rest, in which everything is coming and going, but the mind is not reacting. As that restfulness deepens, you will find, I think, that your need for sleep diminishes greatly. And as people get into the practice more, they start sleeping five hours, four hours, three hours. It's enough, because through the day, the mind is in this place of restfulness, of ease. One image, which I mentioned in one of the interview groups, might give you a sense of the possibility of keeping the mind at rest as different experiences arise and pass away. That's like going to the side of a busy road, a highway, and your job is to notice every car that passes. And there are cars going in both directions. And so what might we do? We might stand by the side of the road And very busily, as each car passes, keep looking back and forth to catch every car. And after a very short time, we get tired and a headache. Another possibility would be to stand perfectly still, keeping our eyes open, and simply noticing every car as it crosses our field of vision. It's not moving. It's not reacting. The cars are doing the work. The cars are going back and forth, and because they cross the field of vision, we see them. But what happens? Maserati goes by. Hmm, nice. You know, some old garbage truck goes by. Don't want to see it. Look away. And so we lose that sense of balance. We lose the sense of restfulness. Mindfulness, or bare attention, is exactly that quality of non-doing, of being still and letting all aspects of experience arise and pass by themselves. Experience is doing the work. We don't have to do anything except to be present. This ties into a third aspect of bare attention, which also might be encouraging to you. And that is that the practice goes from a place of making great effort to a place of effortlessness. In the beginning, we have to make the effort to keep coming back to the moment. At a certain point, the mindfulness gets strong enough to begin working by itself. Imagine an arch, and you're trying to balance on top of the arch, and things are coming by and pushing you off balance, and you fall off on one side, and you have to make all this effort to climb back up to the top, and something comes by and you fall off the other side, make all this effort to come back to the top. At a certain point, the arch inverts, and it becomes a trough. And there you are balanced, just at the bottom of the trough, And every once in a while, you'll be pulled out by something strong, but automatically, the mind drops back down to center. You're pulled off on the other side, drops back down to center. 
the whole process starts to work by itself. It's like cranking up an old car. You know, you got to get up outside and crank it. You crank, 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 and the engine turns over and you hop in. What we're doing now is cranking up mindfulness. You You crank and you crank and you crank. And at a certain point, and this point has to do with the frequency of noticings. I call them NPMs, noticings per minute. (laughs) When the NPMs reach a certain point, it's like the engine of mindfulness turns over and you just kind of hop in and off it goes. It's quite literally how it works. But for the most part, our NPMs are pretty low. You know, it's like we're lucky if we notice, you know, one object here and then a minute later another object and another object. Because we're so busy reacting and jumping in and commenting and judging and all sorts of opinions. The NPMs increase the less we do. And that's what's so beautiful about the whole development of bare attention. The less we do, the more we see. The more we see, the more momentum is built up, and at a certain point, the whole process starts to unfold on its own momentum. Now, all all experience and activity has its own rhythm. When you look at anything, you look at nature, there's a rhythm to the seasons. There's a rhythm to day and night. There's a rhythm in human activity. Oh, in dance, in sports, in movement. In everything, there's a rhythm to it. And when people find the rhythm, that's when they become one with the activity. Now, when you look at somebody who's perfected something, you know, a great dancer, a skier, a tennis player, whatever, and you watch them perform, it always looks so effortless, you know, until you get up and try to do it. And you see how difficult it is. It's because they found the rhythm of it, and the rhythm carries it. In exactly the same way, there is a rhythm to our own inner experience. There's a rhythm to the breath, to sensations, to thoughts, to sounds, If we can get out of the way and simply allow this natural rhythm to be there, we plug into that and the rhythm carries the awareness, the rhythm carries the mindfulness. And so the suggestions to settle back, to not interfere, to be soft, to be allowing, is all to create the space in which to find which to experience the natural rhythm of being. And I don't mean to make this sound, you know, particularly mystical or far off. It's not. It's very ordinary. It's as simple as the natural rhythm of breathing in and out. To expand that sense to all aspects of our experience. To let things be. To let things come and go in their own time not holding on, not resisting. Because attachment and resistance is what breaks the rhythm. Living in the present moment, learning how to settle back in that way, coming to a place of rest and effortlessness, letting the rhythm of experience establish itself. There's another aspect of bare attention which It highlights the the scope of what we're doing. And that is the aspect of its universality. There is nothing which is outside of the practice. There is no experience, no activity, no object. There is no possible experience which 
falls outside of the field of awareness. And so, in some very deep sense, that's a tremendous relief, because we don't have to make anything special happen. Anything that happens falls within the scope of attentiveness, of awareness. It's as if we're explorers going to a new country and exploring the terrain. And then we go and we go up in the mountains and then down into the jungles and the desert and the sea coast and the plains. And each new part or aspect of the terrain has something else to offer us, some other aspect to teach us. In exactly the same way, we're exploring the terrain of this world the world of the mind and body in our experience. And whatever we come across is absolutely fine. That's the gift of that moment. Can we be with it? Can we learn from it? The whole range of emotion. You know, sometimes people somehow get the message that when you're meditating, it's always supposed to be calm and quiet. And if you're having strong emotional energy, that's wrong or a mistake. That's inaccurate. Because then that puts that realm of emotional energy outside the field of attentiveness. It's an exploration. There's sadness, there's happiness, there's anger, there's love, there's compassion, joy. The whole range is in there. And each of those are to be experienced and open to. You have to find the middle way between resisting and pushing things away on the one hand and wallowing on the other. Because meditation and awareness doesn't mean wallowing in what's happening. It doesn't mean that identified involvement in the storyline. Rather, it means opening with awareness and balance to what the experience is. You learn how to dance with the different kinds of energy. It's important not to fragment one's life in the guise of spiritual or meditative understanding, thinking that meditation is one part of our lives and then there's another worldly part. Now, so often in the interviews, people ask about well, what do I do when I get back to the real world? Uh, and this, I understand what's meant by that, but it's important to not make that distinction because there is no difference. It's the same life energy unfolding, whether we're sitting here or walking down the streets of New York. Experience dances through different forms. Meditation is universal, has universal application in that it means awareness in each moment to whatever is happening in whatever form it's happening. There's no break, there's no split. There's one poem, a, a song, a popular song that I heard a couple of years ago and it ended with one line which struck me connected a lot with the practice, said, some people say that life is strange, but what I'd like to know is compared to what? (laughs) You know, sometimes we look at our experiences and separate out, boy, that's strange. (laughs) Compared to what? You know, life presents what it presents, and it's of a whole. It's not, it's not fragmented, it's not separate. And so our practice has to have that wholeness. What we're doing in cultivating bare attention, this choiceless awareness, is not just, you know, for sitting in this hall. It's an attitude, it's a quality of mind that becomes part of the unfolding of our experience. 
is a story illustrating just how far we can carry this integration. It seems there was a hermit practicing meditation in the forest. And one day, as he was sitting, he heard the roar of a big tiger, big man-eating tiger, or woman-eating tiger. <laughs> Non-sexist tigers. <laughs> and so this person kind of gets up and starts running away from the tiger. And he comes to the cliff and falls over the, you know, goes over the side of the cliff and is hanging onto a vine. And he looks up and there's the tiger growling. Big, just big tiger. Tiger below. And he looks down, there's another tiger waiting for him. As that person's hanging there, you know, two little mice come out and start to eat away the vine. Just for a moment, see if you can imagine yourself in that position. You're hanging by a vine, there's a tiger above, a tiger below, and two mice are eating the vine away. Now, how would you feel? In the story, this person looks to one side and sees a big strawberry growing out of the side of the cliff. Turns and plucks the strawberry and eats it and says, how delicious. Would we be able to do that? Would we be able to enjoy the strawberry? When you look at it, our lives are really no different. If you see the tigers as birth and death, the mice are eating the vine away. Can we be present for every experience? Can we be there fully appreciating, enjoying, opening to whatever it is that's presenting itself? That's what the path of practice is about. It's the path of opening. There are two factors of mind which strengthen our ability to be present, to be open, to live in this realm of bare attention. One of them is the factor of concentration. And concentration in this sense means steadiness of mind and well-being. There's a quality of wholeness and stillness It doesn't mean in the practice that we're doing that the mind gets fixed or locked into one object, but rather it's the steadiness of that person standing by the side of the road and watching all the cars go by without reacting. We can be concentrated with many objects coming and going in each moment, but the mind is still. The mind has a certain steadiness. With this steadiness of mind, the non-reactiveness, comes a sense of enormous well-being because we no longer feel so fragmented or separated or agitated. How to develop this stillness? There's an image which might give you a sense of how to work. You have a little puppy, six weeks old, and you want to train it to stay. Okay, so you have the puppy and you kind of set it down, stay. Two seconds after you say it, it's up and running around. Stay, up and running around. You go through this process, maybe a long time, stay, 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 stay. Maybe the tenth time or the twentieth time or the hundredth time, it stays for a minute and it goes running around. And you bring it back, stay. After some time, depending on how clever the puppy is, it will learn, you know, stay, and it actually stays. When you're in the process of training the puppy, when it goes running around, you know, after you tell it to stay, do you beat it? No. Well, then it'll stay. <laughs> you don't beat it, and you don't get angry, and you don't get judgmental. It's just a puppy. It's the nature of the puppy to do that until it's trained. And so there's a firmness and there's a discipline 
But there's also a sense of joy and a sense of lightness, a sense of happiness. Our minds are just like that little puppy. You know, you tell it to stay. Does it stay? No. Kind of, you know, two seconds later, it's off and running. You bring it back, stay. It's off and running, stay, stay, stay. And after some time, depending on how clever, (laughs) how quick the mind catches on, it actually does stay for a minute, for five minutes. You know, and as you practice, and as you develop the ability, it stays for longer. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean to stay on just one object, to stay in the sense of being present for whatever presents itself. You don't beat it, and you don't judge it, and you don't condemn it for going off. That's all extra. You can train the mind with a sense of joy, with a sense of lightness, with a sense of appreciation of the work that you're actually doing. We're fashioning the mind. We're taking this rather untrained, you know, and for the most part unmanageable energy, this energy of consciousness, and we're actually fashioning it and molding it. And it takes time and it takes patience, and it's possible. It can actually be worked with. When it is, have you ever worked with um, clay, you know, when, when you're potting, and the clay is the right consistency? It's very workable. It's, it's wonderful to watch good potters, you know, as they run up and down and create all these fantastic shapes. Because the material is malleable. If it's too dry, it's not going to work. And if it's too wet, it's not going to work. In just the same way, the mind actually becomes malleable. It's, it's an energy which can be trained and fashioned. And when it reaches that place, it has tremendous scope, tremendous power. So as you're working with the concentration, work with an appreciation of what you're doing, rather than with judgment or criticism or disappointment, because all of that is unnecessary. So concentration is one aspect which strengthens our ability to be present and choiceless awareness. The second is the factor of mindfulness. Not only the steadiness of mind, but the noticing of what the object is, what the experience is. And this is analogous to learning how to listen. Mindfulness means listening, listening carefully. If you're sitting and listening to your favorite piece of music, do you have a sense of the qualities of mind involved in that? You're sitting and listening, very receptive. You're not doing anything. The music is coming in. The mind is receptive and attentive at the same time. Imagine listening to a piece of music and not missing a single note. Just being there. And the joy that comes from that kind of awareness. We're listening to this piece of music. And it's an extraordinary composition. Learning how to listen, to pay attention. It's not doing. It's non-doing. It's being receptive, being open. I'd like to read a poem about listening by Pablo Neruda, a poet from Chile. It's called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush and without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. 
Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, they would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve and you keep quiet and I will go. The power of silence, the power of listening, the power of awareness. That's what we're practicing. Do you have any questions? The difference between consciousness and awareness. I use the word awareness and mindfulness interchangeably. Different than consciousness. And an example which might help you understand that difference. If you take the example of thought as an object. When you're lost in thought, there's still the consciousness of it. There's the knowing of it. If somebody asks you what you were thinking, you you would be able to tell them because you were conscious of the thought. But you weren't aware of thinking. That is, you weren't mindful of the fact that you were thinking. There was a lostness in it. So there's consciousness of it, there's the knowing of it, without the mindfulness of it. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between being lost in a thought and being mindful that the thought is present? That's the difference between consciousness and awareness. In every moment, consciousness exists. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's sensing, there's thinking. Consciousness is arising every moment. We're not mindful every moment. Often the mind is lost in the experience. The question had to do with worrying about not making more effort and wondering whether making more effort is extra or part of the practice. I think it's helpful to distinguish between efforting and effort. Efforting is extra, because that's kind of a tightening and a struggle. The right effort of practice, and it's one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, so it's obviously an important part of what we're doing, and to understand it is important. Right effort is not the effort to reach out for anything, which is how we usually interpret or manifest effort. It's the effort to get something, or the effort to do something. Right effort is simply the effort to be aware of what's happening in the moment. And so it's a very settled back quality. It's not a reaching out. You have to pay attention. A good part of practice, and I've been practicing for a long time now, and still learning what right effort means. And so it's something to keep in mind to explore, to investigate. Okay, what is this quality of right effort now? Is there too much struggle? Is there too much striving? Then you have to settle back more. Are you too laid back? Are you too relaxed? Then you have to rev it up a little bit. So it's always a question of looking carefully at the quality of the effort. But it's not efforting, it's not striving. It's an energy of wakefulness. As you go through the ups and downs, it's like a, it's like a curve. The slope of the curve is going up. Right? So even though from 
any hour, you know, hour to hour, sitting to sitting, it's up, it's down, you're concentrated, you're not concentrated, the mindfulness is strong, it's not strong. Over a period of time, you'll find that you start with a level of concentration and mindfulness here, and you end up with one here. But you're quite right in saying it's not linear. But there is development in that process. Okay, deepening the practice, there are many aspects to it. Uh, an easy one to understand is the rate of NPMs. Right? How much are we noticing in each moment? Are we noticing just, you know, these big chunks of experience? Or is our perception getting refined so that we're noticing more microscopically what's happening? The result of that, and actually I'm glad you asked this question, because there's a little part of the talk I left out. I'll just put it in now. <laughs> you might ask, why bother doing all this? Right? Why bother increasing the NPMs? Or being mindful, or cultivating their attention? You know, people seem to be getting along okay. More or less. <laughs> when this quality of awareness, of listening, is strong, and when we're noticing more and more in each moment, one of the things that we discover, we experience very clearly and directly, is the momentariness of phenomena. We go from knowing intellectually that everything's changing to the deepest level of experiencing that. We actually experience in this process just the instantaneous arising and vanishing. When we see the impermanence, when we experience it, that deconditions attachment. Does anybody ever go to the side of a stream and try to hold on to the water? Probably not. Because it's very clear that the stream is just flowing and that you can't hold on to it. In just the same way, when we see, when we understand, not with our thoughts, not with our intellect, but with our experience, that every aspect of ourselves, every aspect of the world, is in this state of constant momentary change, it deconditions that force of attachment and grasping. The less attached we are to that which is changing, the less we suffer. If we're holding on to that which in its nature is changing, to the degree that we hold on, when it changes, we suffer. Is anybody not clear about that? It seems so obvious that if you're trying to hold on to something which is changing, you're going to suffer. Whether it's the body, whether it's situations, whether it's other people, whether it's possessions, and you can see it. You can see it in your own life and in the world. People suffer because they're trying to hold on to something. And the thing they're trying to hold on to has changed to something else. We try to hold on to the body in good condition. Inevitably, it's going to get old and it's going to begin to break down. You know, we try to maintain it as, in as wise a fashion as possible, but still the, na the nature of it is that it's going to change. The more attached we are, the less able we're going to be to be able to just go with those changes, be accepting of it. And so people panic and they they get terrified and they suffer. In our practice, the more we can penetrate into the truth of these momentary changes, automatically the wisdom of letting go starts to manifest. There's one, just one more comment. There's one teacher, he's quite ill now, but he was teaching in the forests of Thailand, Ajahn Chah. He had one wonderful example. Some people came to him, 
for the Dharma teachings. And he held up a cup, not, not, not like this, a glass cup. And he said, how should we relate to this cup? He said, the best way to relate to this cup is as if it's already broken. Because then we use it and we take care of it. And when it's broken, it's okay. Because we've already accepted that. Broken in the sense of change. If we can relate, I'll give you a little koan to work with. <laughs> Imagine relating to yourself and your experience as if you're already dead. <laughs> It would be different. Thank you. <laughs> okay, one last question. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's important to understand the difference between commitment and attachment because those two are very different states. Commitment is a sense of enduring in a certain direction. Attachment is trying to fix something in an unchanging way. In an example that may be more, less charged and easier to understand, it's the difference between being committed to your practice going through all the ups and downs that you go through and attached to a certain state happening. If you're attached to your practice, attached to a particular thing happening, you are going to suffer. And it actually happened to me at one point. I'd gone through one period where every time I sat, the whole body dissolved into this blissful light. It was wonderful. And a few months went, like every time I sat, just light, fantastic. I got off on it a lot. <laughs> came back, this, this was in India, I came back to America and was doing some work for a few months, went back to India, just couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> I sat down, it was a body of iron. The light had totally gone tight compressed, knotted. For two years, I practiced trying to get back to that former experience. It was the most frustrating, difficult, discouraging two years. And it was only when I let go of trying to make anything happen and simply open to what actually was there that the whole thing started to move again. Attachment to having something a certain way is totally out of harmony with the truth of change. Commitment means that you're willing to be there for whatever changes you go through. Does that answer your question at all? Commitment is essential in anything. In a relationship, in a relationship to your practice, the only way to experience the fullness of something is the willingness to go through all the aspects of it. You know, the ups and the downs, and it's pleasant and it's unpleasant. And in that way, we come to a very full and rich understanding of the experience. So, as you continue your practice now, keep in mind this quality of listening, of bare attention, non-interfering awareness. It's the settling back into the moment with refinement and with a caring and loving attention to what the experience is. And you can get very fine. Now, in the movement, it can get extremely subtle. As you're walking and moving, in one step, the mind can drop down into a very fine level of perception. As you're sitting, be with each breath, each sensation, each sound, with that quality of care.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.